0: is a subject dear to all our hearts. It's both a blessing when we need it, and a curse when our bodies and brains need more than is convenient, or when illness prevents us from getting what we need. I'm Jan Orman. Welcome to the Being Well podcast. This episode of the podcast is a distillation of a conversation we had recently in the eMental Health in Practice and Black Dog Institute webinar called A Chance to Dream about the non pharmacological management of insomnia. You're welcome to access a recording of the full webinar via the Health Professional section of the Black Dog Institute website if you're interested. My guests on the webinar were clinical psychologist, Dr. Christine Kafer, and rural GP and addiction specialist, Dr. Simon Holliday, along with a medical sleep expert, Dr. Vincent McCauley. Each represented a different perspective on the issue of sleep disturbance, but it all added up to a pretty consistent message.
1: If you don't address sleep, then fundamentally the foundation upon which our mental health and wellbeing sits is always going to be problematic.
0: That's Chris Kafer. As you can hear, she has some pretty strong views on the importance of sleep in our lives. By definition, insomnia is sleep disturbance accompanied by impaired daytime performance that's lasted one month or more. British figures tell us that 30% of the population has sleep disturbance at any given time, but only 10% experience daytime impairment as a result, And in only 5% has that disturbance persisted for a month or more. For health practitioners, complaints of sleep disturbance can become a nightmarish problem because most people whose sleep is disturbed, especially to the extent of daytime impairment, want a quick fix. And any GP will attest to the level of desperation that accompanies that sort of problem. The whole problem of insomnia is not a new one. Here's Dr Macaulay. The Romans were
2: said to have put dormouse fat on their feet to get a good night's sleep. Apparently dormice had been famous for sleeping for a long time, well before the Mad Hatter's tea party. Even the father of probability, Cardano, in the 16th century, thought that if he smeared his teeth with earwax from the dog, that that would help him with his sleep. I don't think that was very probable.
0: For health professionals, it's really difficult to resist the pressure for the quick fix, especially when patients are so desperate, when everyone knows that sleep-inducing drugs exist and the prescription pad is so close at hand. But there is much more that we can do, things that have been shown to be effective and are not associated with the side effects of medications. Before we make the effort to resist prescribing, we need to fully understand why we should resist it and our patients need to understand that too. We probably all do know why we shouldn't prescribe. Apart from poor quality sleep, there's impairment of daytime functioning, including cognitive function, increased risk of falls and injury, negative impact on mood, negative impact on immune and endocrine function, increased rate of decline in dementia, and the development of tolerance and addiction, just to name a few. So what exactly do these medications do to our sleep? To understand that, we have to take a step back and look at normal sleep architecture and the function of sleep.
2: The lay view of sleep is that it's an inactive process. You just lie there. But in fact, it is a very active process with three to five uh, cycles of Activity that occurred during the night and the active processes go from stage 1 sleep through stage 2 3 and 4 sleep all of which are characterized by different mixes of EEG, EOG, that's the extraoculogram and electromyogram patterns. In particular REM sleep occurs more in the latest uh, cycles during the night so that they're the most important ones in terms of getting REM sleep. And REM sleep is characterized by loss of muscle tone and rapid eye movements, which are picked up by the extraoculogram. And in those phases, there is considerable dreaming and uh, there is certainly a lot of fear amongst people who are having sleep studies that you can actually read what their dreams are. Disruption of this pattern leads to significant stress both physiologically and psychologically. And this is seen both in loss of REM sleep, loss of slow-wave sleep, and also loss of normal cycling.
0: So we're looking at three to five cycles of brain activity each night, beginning with light sleep in stages one and two, and moving through deeper slow-wave sleep in stages three and four, then ending in rapid eye movement sleep, known as REM, And that's where most of our dreaming occurs. The proportion of REM sleep increases with each successive cycle through the night. When we see someone with sleep disturbance, we should of course always keep the primary sleep disorders in mind.
2: More than 100 primary sleep disorders have now been described. But the most common ones that are seen in practice are central sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, and narcolepsy. These can have many secondary effects, including hypertension, cardiovascular disease, stroke, endocrine dysfunction. But in this context, the memory and cognitive defects that are secondary to primary sleep disorders are particularly important.
0: These conditions and a host of other medical conditions can interfere with sleep. Sleep disturbance is not always psychological. Recent research has shone light on why we need to sleep at all, and especially why we need REM and slow-wave sleep. We're not just recharging our metabolic batteries. Slow-wave sleep seems to function to help us tidy up our old memories and lay down new ones, while REM acts to take some of the emotional sting out of our memories. There's also some evidence that REM provides a regular recalibration of the facial-emotional recognition system, thus playing an important role in interpersonal functioning. So really, not getting enough normal sleep results not just in daytime sleepiness and a whole lot of physical conditions, such as reduced resistance to infection and increased risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease, obesity and type 2 diabetes. It's also associated with the presence or exacerbation of a great many psychiatric disorders. But here's why we can't just prescribe a hypnotic and leave it at that.
2: Enzodiazepines have profound effects on sleep. They make it easier for people to get to sleep, but also suppress all of the stages of sleep except stage one and two. Loss of stages three, four and REM sleep mean that the usual editing and emotional content laying down that is associated with these sleep stages does not occur.
0: That's pretty severe interference with normal sleep patterns and normal sleep function. What about other commonly used substances?
2: Ingestion of alcohol may make it easier for some people to get to sleep. However, it does have a significant effect on sleep architecture, both decreasing the amount of slow-wave sleep that people get and also decreasing the number of episodes of REM and the duration of REM sleep that occurs during those sleep cycles. You can have multiple secondary effects on any other primary medical disorders. And in particular, as many of us would know, it can bring on snoring that doesn't otherwise normally occur. And if you already have snoring, it can actually precipitate obstructive sleep apnea. These combined effects can have a very significant impact on mood.
0: Well, so much for the commonest solution to problematic sleep. Perhaps it's not such a good idea after all. Caffeine is also worth thinking about. It peaks at 30 minutes after ingestion, and its half-life is 5 hours. What it does is occupy adenosine receptors and thereby interfere with the drive to sleep. Some people think that caffeine has no effect on their sleep, but it in fact does affect the quality of their sleep, even if they're unaware of it, and it certainly interferes with the removal of adenosine from the system overnight. So. In doing so, it contributes to a greater drive to sleep in the mornings, a much greater drive than they would otherwise experience, and of course the inevitable need for another cup of coffee. There's caffeine in tea too, and a cup of decaffeinated coffee has about the same amount of caffeine in it as a cup of black tea. There's also caffeine in a number of soft drinks, fancy waters, and energy-boosting foods that are sold as health foods. What about cannabis? Here's Dr Holliday.
2: Cannabis is um, a pretty common, um, commonly used medication or drug. Uh, many people use it just to um, relax, chill out and go to sleep and they can be absolutely convinced that this is quite benign and quite safe and quite effective. However, when you look at the research... Cannabis users don't tend to have good sleep. And while uh, a cannabis-naive person might have improved sleep, most cannabis users, if you do sleep diaries, actually have um, fairly rapidly deteriorating sleep. And if you do polysomnography and other objective measures, their sleep is similarly damaged.
0: So what can we do other than prescribe or self-medicate? I asked Chris Kafer to tell us about the evidence-based non-pharmacological interventions that are available to us.
1: Well the best evidence is the cognitive behaviour therapy specifically for insomnia and that comes from meta-analysis, systematic reviews and clinical trials but there's also good evidence for stimulus control and sleep restriction. But in a sense CBTI covers all of those as well. It's a complete package that includes psychoeducation, includes monitoring, it includes looking at the role of your thinking style and then of course addressing those behaviours that perpetuate sleep problems. So it really is educating people, it's helping them to look at their behaviours and learning what patterns are causing problems. It's about working out what's happening in terms of the environment and what can be modified in terms of the environment, what conditioning has been set up. Sleep restriction therapy is a very effective therapy in terms of um, making sure people, when they're in bed, they're sleeping and also looking at the role of self-talk, and also in general looking at reducing arousal levels. And I guess what a lot of people don't know is that these non-pharmacological strategies work for 70 to 80% of people. So they're very effective. They don't have the side effects of medi- medication. Um, so letting you know your patients know that they are very effective helps build motivation and positive expectancy, which then helps them commit and persevere, because sometimes the treatments can take a little while. An explanation of it then helps people to understand um, why they should persevere with the treatments. But I think you match the level of sophistication and the platform of your material to the level of your client. You know, there's really good printed fact sheets, there's, um, you're going to be talking about the online resources, but there's also YouTube clips with neuroscientists talking about why we sleep. But the education helps them set realistic expectations, help debunk any myths that we all need eight hours sleep, And I guess the education helps build motivation. You can link the sleep problems to other health issues, in particular the ones that they're struggling most with, whether it be weight or trauma, and a win with sleep will bring about gains in other areas of health and wellbeing. And on the flip side, without addressing sleep, gains in other areas, especially with mental health, will be compromised.
0: Chris went on to talk about the value of having your patient keep a sleep diary to collect information about current sleep habits especially if the plan is to move on to sleep restriction therapy.
1: A lot of people say, I haven't slept a wink, but once you've gathered a, a couple of weeks of the diary, you'll get a sense that they are sleeping. It may be very disturbed, but they are sleeping. And what their pattern is then helps shape whatever intervention you're going to be doing.
0: We all know about sleep hygiene, and it's important that we talk to our patients about it. But it's also important that we make the conversation relevant to the person we're talking to we can't just give them a handout. We need to help them work out what they're doing that may be interfering with their sleep and encourage them to experiment with change. But what about sleep restriction?
1: How does that work? A lot of people will start uh, changing their behaviours in order to try and get more sleep, but these behaviours often make things worse. So they're going to bed early, they're lying awake for ages because they can't sleep. And so sleep restriction really is about working out um, what percentage of the time in bed that they are actually asleep and really restricting um, the time they spend in bed to just those hours in which they're, they're more likely to sleep. And it's based on experiment evidence about sleep being regulated by circadian and, and homeostatic processes. So the treatment increases homeostatic sleep drive by reducing time in bed and maintaining a consistent wake-up time actually reinforces this, the circadian rhythm. And also getting people to get sunlight and light during the day and then at night sort of restricting that light and darkening also is part of it
0: chris talked about her client tanya to help us understand a little better the practical aspects of sleep restriction therapy
1: so you start by averaging getting her to do a sleep diary and averaging out the number of of hours per night that she's actually asleep and we can see that she was averaging about five and a half hours per night but she was actually spending Eight hours in bed and if we look at that as a ratio that's what we call a sleep efficiency that's only about 69 percent and we're actually wanting to average around 80 to 85 percent. And so working that out you would set a, a strict uh, getting up time which she set at 6.30 a.m. and then working backwards you'd only want her to sleep six, to go to bed six hours per night. She would keep on doing this, keep on using a sleep log until the sleep efficiency came up and that she, the time that she was spending in bed, she was asleep for 80 to 85% of the time. So by the third week of doing that, Tanya's sleep, she was sleeping about 85% of the time she was in bed. So we could then start to bring her bedtime back by 15 minute intervals. So you could either sort of stretch it 15 minutes in the morning or stretch it in the evening. And so she then opted to go to bed at 12.15 a.m. And, um, and after five weeks, she was able to sleep from 11.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. and we got it back on track. But I think sleep restriction is very effective, but it also has to be explained well to the client. And it also has to be undertaken at a time when the, the client has the energy to um, invest in it and to, to see it through. Chris also
0: emphasised the need to learn to challenge the negative cognitions around sleep disturbance that contribute to the problem, that whole not sleeping because you're so worried about not sleeping problem. She also talked about the really important issue of using relaxation and other techniques to reduce overall daytime arousal levels, which are commonly quite high in people who are having difficulty sleeping at night. So What's available online then if your patients won't go to a psychologist who knows about CPTI and you don't feel confident about delivering it yourself? There are lots of good sources of information online for psychoeducation, including the Beyond Blue website and the Reach Out website. It's important, as with all online recommendations, that you recommend specific sites, sites that have reliable, credible information so that your patients aren't confused by all the internet-based misinformation that they might stumble across. There are also specific treatment programs for insomnia based on CBTI that are Australian and evidence-based and free of charge. This Way Up has an insomnia program that's free, there's a module about sleeping well inside the My Compass program and a new suite of programs from Federation University called My Digital Health, which includes an insomnia program as well as a program designed to help people reduce their benzodiazepine consumption. There are plenty of resources out there to help you help your patients manage their disturbed sleep without resorting to medications. Using non-pharmacological interventions will not just help their sleep and also help reduce their depressive symptoms, but it will also improve their sense of personal agency and contribute to improved self-esteem, all without the side effects and dangerous health impacts of sleep-inducing medications. Well, that's it for this episode of the Being Well podcast. There are more episodes available on the MPRAC page of the Black Dog Institute website, along with on-demand recordings of the webinars that you might enjoy. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time.